Prescription medication abuse has become one of our largest public health crises. How did we get here? Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. We're speaking with Dr. Anna Lemke, author of Drug Dealer MD. Dr. Lemke, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So what is your professional background? So I completed a residency in psychiatry with no plan whatsoever to treat people with addiction, did a fellowship in mood disorders, and then started in my practice and realized pretty quickly that if I didn't figure out how to help people with their substance use problems, I wouldn't be able to help them with their depression or anxiety or whatever it was they were coming to see me about. So then there was about 10 years of backpedaling while I had to kind of figure out by reading and talking to colleagues educated in addiction as well as learning a whole lot from my patients. I kind of did this sort of self-education autodidact thing in how to treat treat patients for substance use disorders and have hence become kind of a, an expert in the field, which is a scary thought, but there it is. So can you quantify how big a problem this is in the United States right now? One of the statistics that I like to quote is that there are about 40 million people in this country struggling with some kind of substance use disorder and about 20 million people struggling with cancer. And the reason that I like to look at that statistic is because when you think about the healthcare dollars put toward treating cancer, which is obviously, you know, a very important illness for us to try to treat, but you compare that to the amount of resources spent on treating substance use disorders versus the prevalence of those two disorders, it's it's kind of a an astounding conundrum. There was an amazing statistic in the book about how much oxycodone was being used in the state of Florida. Could you share that with our listeners? Well, I don't remember that exact statistic, but I can tell you. Wasn't it there was enough oxycodone used in the state to give 34 pills for every resident? Yeah. But I, I found that an amazing thing that everyone in the state of Florida would get 34 oxycodone. Oh, yeah. There are other you know, fascinating statistics like there that we prescribe enough opioids in the United States to furnish every single adult with a bottle of pills to last a month. And I think what's really amazing about that is when you look at the prevalence of, of the need for analgesia, pain relief in this country, it isn't any different than it was 30, 40 years ago. And it also isn't any different from other major developed countries from Germany to Japan. And yet our consumption of opioids through doctor's prescriptions is astoundingly higher than any of those countries. We constitute about 4% of the world population, but consume about 80% of the world's opioids. So you and I both trained in the late 80s, early 90s. So how did this suddenly escalate? I certainly don't remember this to be such a problem when I was training and a young attending. The escalation occurred through a very insidious process that began within the House of Medicine. And I think that's one of the reasons it's such an important topic for people in the healthcare field to understand. It all started in the 1980s when there was recognition within medicine that we weren't doing enough to help people with pain. Uh, more and more people were having chronic pain conditions, people dying at the end of life in terrible pain. And so there was a legitimate need to improve the way that we helped people with terrible pain. The problem was that the emphasis on opioid prescribing as a way to help those individuals spawned a whole industry of using opioids to treat not just end-of-life pain or acute pain, but also chronic pain conditions, as well as sort of mild acute pain conditions that previously never would have warranted an opioid prescription. So what started out as a good intention really became this very terrible kind of insidious propagation of essentially opioid addiction from within 
the field of medicine. And there were many factors contributing to that. Certainly a big pharma, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, the makers of Oxycontin and other makers of opioid analgesics, you know, hopped onto that bandwagon and, and exerted tremendous pressure to prescribe more opioids. But I think it's really important to note that the pharmaceutical industry has been doing what they do for a long time. The interesting question is, why is it that all of a sudden medicine took to that message so much more strongly than it did previously? And I think to really understand that, it's important to look at cultural changes in terms of how we conceptualize pain, as well as changes uh, in, in healthcare delivery that really made opioids not really the solution to patients' problems, but the solution to doctors' problems. I think just in looking at the book, it really seems like it is such a layered problem and and kind of taking some of these layers bit by bit. You talked about pharma, and one of the things I thought was really fascinating, that once upon a time, if you were trying to sell a new ACE inhibitor, you know, really how they tried to do it is go doctor office to doctor office and things like that. And it seemed like with Purdue, it really became finding this expert person to talk to masses of people at one time. Could you talk about that? Exactly. So what what the pharmaceutical companies learned early on was that even if you just gave a doctor a pen or, let's say, you know, a hat or, or a funny mug, they were more inclined to prescribe your drug. But when the data came out about how influential even those small gifts could be, not to mention the much larger gifts that also did occur, then there were certain regulations put into place in the 1990s that forbid pharmaceutical pharmaceutical reps from having that kind of contact with physicians and forbid them from providing physicians with gifts. There was also the Sunshine Act that made it possible to go and look and see exactly which physicians were accepting gifts. So the way that the pharmaceutical industry worked around that was instead to identify key academic thought leaders that would then go around to mandatory continuing medical education conferences and talk about how opioids, for example, were beneficial treatment for chronic pain. And they would sort of weave a narrative based on what we now know is essentially false evidence to convince doctors that this wasn't what the pharmaceutical industry wanted. This was what the science said we should do. And and that's what I talk about in my book, this kind of Trojan horse approach where when When the big pharma could no longer directly contact doctors, instead they infiltrated academic medicine, who then convinced doctors pretty effectively that prescribing opioids was based in science. I think the other piece of that is not only did they infiltrate academic medicine, but they also infiltrated the various watchdog organizations within medicine that are meant to keep these sorts of things in check. For example, the American Federation of State Medical Boards was involved. They wrote a book together with Purdue Pharmaceutical, which was then disseminated for free to medical students. And this book, for example, would tell medical students that, you know, as long as they were prescribing opioids for pain, there was a less than 1% chance that patients would would get addicted. And those were the kinds of myths that were propagated, uh, all in, in the name of science. And then the Joint Commission comes and shows up at all of our hospitals and says, pain is the fifth vital sign. And doctor, if you're not taking care of pain properly, you're a bad doctor. Right. So this was really a key turning point. By 2007, 
most doctors had moved from private practice into integrated healthcare systems. So most of us are now salaried employees of a large health conglomerate, including myself, which means that if you have quality measures that come down from hospital administration telling you you have to practice in a certain way, it has a tremendous and immediate impact on a large number of doctors. So in the 1990s, early 2000s, when the Joint Commission decided that pain was a quote-unquote quality measure, and that not only did doctors have to measure it, but then they had to make sure that they addressed it to the patient's satisfaction. So they came up with the pain scale from 1 to 10. 1 is mild pain. 10 is the worst pain you can imagine. And they had doctors go around and ask patients to quantify their pain. Now, the truth of the matter is there is no measure of pain. We have no objective evidence that this pain scale works. And the literature to date says that the only thing that using the pain scale does is increase opioid prescribing. Okay, so that evidence notwithstanding, what happened was Patients were then asked on their way out their door, quote, unquote, did your doctor do everything in his or her power to address your pain? That's a pretty loaded question. I mean, everything within your power, did, you, did they give up their firstborn child to address your pain? So you can imagine the tremendous pressure on physicians to prescribe as many opioids as a given patient want to essentially completely get rid of their pain, even if there were very many telltale signs that that patient was becoming addicted to that medication. I also want to say that this is a, even a more insidious and psychological factor of it, was that if you were a doctor who wasn't, quote unquote, adequately addressing your patient's pain, you were sort of like a monster, right? Because doctors are supposed to be compassionate. And if you're a doctor who's not addressing pain, there's something morally compromised about you. But I think that you and I turning into people who need TripAdvisor scores or Yelp scores is really troubling because... I think if we gave patients every blessed thing they want, they would have a lot of antibiotic resistance. They'd have a lot of opioids they didn't want. They'd have MRI scans that found incidental omas they didn't need. So I, I think sometimes saying no as a parent, no is a love word. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think as we become this, as we're as good as our Press-Ganey score, it really becomes a very dangerous thing, I think, for the clinician in practice. Oh, yeah. And, and I talk about this in my book, sort of the origins of Press-Ganey, how it really was just basically founded in a business model that if you want your patients to come back, then you got to treat them like good customers and make sure they're pleased. But good health care can't be treated like a business. There are some aspects of it that certainly adhere to a business model, but there are many aspects of it that can't be treated like a business. And you have to be able to say no to patients. We have to tell patients when the potential risks of a treatment outweigh any benefits. And we have to feel comfortable and supported by the institution environment in which we work in order to be able to say those things. Otherwise, we're all going to turn into drug dealers. And that's essentially the point of my book is that many of us, myself included, have done that sort of thing, you know, have, have behaved in ways that we know are not in the best interest of our patients, but are in the best interest of us. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and we are speaking with Dr. Anna Lemke, author of Drug Dealer MD. You know, one of the things is someone who trains young primary care physicians, they are the most idealistic, wonderful, big-hearted people in the world. And I thought one of the very interesting things in your book was really how people kind of preyed on that intrinsic nature of people 
to help and to ease suffering. Can you talk about that? Oh, yeah. So I think someone should like do the, the inverse correlation between compassion and opioid overprescribing because I think you're absolutely right. It's some of the most compassionate, caring, invested doctors who got involved in some of the, the worst opioid abuses with their patients. Number one, we were trained in the era that you and I both came up through medicine that to be a compassionate doctor meant to do everything in your power to eliminate pain and that no dose of opioids was too high and the patients couldn't get addicted. So that's the background context. And then on top of it, you have these very invested doctors who really care about their patients. And again and again, I've heard from patients who have gotten addicted to prescription opioids that the doctor who escalated the dose the most and gave them the most opioids over time was often the doctor who seemed to care about them the most and who had the most compassion and who listened to them the most empathically. So that's really perverse when you've got a system that turns your most empathic providers into the ones who are perpetrating essentially inadvertently the most harm. Now, speaking about the dark side of the force, you know, I think then there's these doctors who've turned this into this great financial opportunity. And I look in the papers and every few months you see the DEA shuts down a doctor pill mill. Can you talk about what is the intrinsic nature of these kind of bad doctors who are, have turned this into a, a cash business? There's always been that element in medicine, you know, doctors who do not go into the business to help people or, or maybe originally went into the business to help people but somehow, you know, went off the rails you know, physicians who really are in it for the money. And that's always very sad to see that. Pill mills basically are defined as places where doctors have been exchanging prescriptions for cash. And that element, you know, that kind of huckster-esque opportunism has always been in medicine. And certainly with the opioid overprescribing, that element, you know, saw a clear path toward dollars and took it. But I think it's important to point out that that's really a minority, I think, of people. Many of those physicians are now um, not just losing their licenses, but actually going to jail, which is a good thing, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Sure. And yet we looked at sort of the distribution of opioid prescribing across prescribers in an article that we published in JAMA. And what we saw really was that we're all prescribing controlled substances. You know, you, it's not, you can't really even just say it's like this small percent of pill mill doctors. The, the, the epidemic on the scale that we face today is really driven by this little incremental contribution that we all make. I use my DEA every session I'm seeing patients. There's at least one controlled prescription that comes out of my hands. Yes, me too. I don't think it's necessarily, uh, you know, the most evil amongst us. Right. So you've lived in the eye of the storm. And if you were going to give myself advice, if you were going to give state medical boards advice, how do we get out? I think it's going to require, number one, an overhaul of medical education starting from the first day of medical school. We've got to teach medical students how to screen for and intervene for substance use disorders, including prescription drug misuse and addiction. I'm not saying that every doctor needs to become an expert in addiction, but every doctor has to know what to look for. So that means they have to learn from early on how to access their prescription drug monitoring database to tell them all the controlled drugs that the patient has received you know, in the last year. They have to know how to interpret a basic urine tox screen, and they have to give them the language to talk with people about when these problems arise. The other thing that we have to train medical students to do, which we don't do very well, is how to remain in a compassionate and professional stance while still saying no. So how do you convey to a patient, I'm sorry, I can't give you this medicine that you want, but I still care about you. And it's because I care about you that I'm not going to give you the medicine. So I think medical school education is a huge piece. 
I think another huge piece is prescription drug monitoring databases. You know, we have those in every state but Missouri, and yet about 30% of doctors access those. So I do actually believe in making checking the PDMP mandatory for doctors. I think you should have to check it every time you initiate a controlled drug for a patient and then periodically throughout your care of that patient. Because I can tell you that I've been in this business of seeing addicted people for, you know, going on two decades, and I still cannot tell you who's telling the truth and who isn't. You just can't tell. You just cannot judge the book based on its cover. You've got to check these objective data points. So I think that's huge. I think the other big shift, too, has to come in terms of our healthcare delivery system. You know, we are moving toward value-based care, but I think there has to be recognition that for chronic illnesses, what are the targets and how do we really achieve the best care for these very complex patients? We definitely need more time with these patients. We need to be able to establish a long-term trusting and affectionate therapeutic relationship so that we can say no to patients and not lose them, you know, to another provider. So I think that's a big piece of it in terms of, you know, as we've industrialized healthcare, we've sort of lost the art of the relationship, and so we, we need to bring that back. And I guess my fourth major point is that medicine has essentially become this country's social safety net. Doctors are asked to deal not just with diabetes and hypertension or even even cancer, more severe illnesses, right? They're actually asked to deal with unemployment, homelessness, multi-generational trauma. Mm -hmm. So we've essentially eliminated welfare. We've got now more individuals on disability for chronic pain and mental health disorders than you know, we have in the history of this country, and yet we're not giving doctors the resources to actually target those social determinants of health. In fact, what we're asking them to do is to sort of medicalize poverty and other social problems in order to be able to take care of them. And I'm not sure that's doing patients any good because once you've medicalized poverty, then you have to give them a pill and then you're giving them more problems than they started with. So I'd like us as a country to kind of reconsider our social safety net and if we're really going to have medicine be the social safety net, then we have to give doctors the time and the resources to really address those problems. So, Doctor, it's a wonderful book. I'd love to see it on the nightstand of every physician in the United States. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Oh, well, thank you. This is Dr. John Russell. You've been listening to ReachMD Book Club. To download this program or others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. Thanks again for listening.